0: let has one more time with me as we go to the Lord together to ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we are ignorant in the things of you. We do not understand your ways, your words unless the Spirit who breathed those words out comes and opens our eyes and breathes new life and understanding into our hearts that we might respond to your word with contrition, with soft-heartedness, with sorrow over our sins, with obedience and with joy at your offer of salvation in Christ. So open our eyes. Give us a great appetite for your word. We confess we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. So feed us now together, we pray, for Jesus' sake, amen. Why do people seek Jesus? Why are you here? Why do you seek Jesus? In our study through John, we saw last week in chapter 11, verse 52, that John said that Jesus would die to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, in chapter 11, verse 55, to the end of chapter 12, all Israel gathers together in Jerusalem to observe the festival of Passover. And even some Greeks gather for the feast and want to see Jesus in chapter 12, verse 21. As everyone is gathering or getting ready to gather, there is a buzz about Jesus all over town. And John shows us different people seeking Jesus for different reasons. But it will become clear to us that only one of those reasons for seeking Jesus is good. Motives matter. It matters to you why people want to be with you, right? And it matters to Jesus why people want to be with Him. So you seek Jesus, you're here, but why do you seek Jesus? What do you seek from Him? Many different reasons for seeking Jesus are still operative among people today. We're going to see many of those reasons here in John 11. Follow along in your own Bible as I read out loud for us, John 11:55 55 through chapter 12, verse 11. I'm going to see four different reasons that people seek Jesus, even religious people. John 11, starting in verse 55. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus. And saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, learned that Jesus was there in Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Four reasons that even religious people seek Jesus. First, the Jews in verses 55 to 57 of chapter 11. They seek him because they want to gossip. Their motive is gossip. It's now near the Passover of the Jews and for John's readers, as for us, we know what that means. It means that Jesus' death is fast approaching. Many went up to the country, from the country to Jerusalem to purify themselves. That word for country in verse 55 is the same word translated wilderness in verse 54, which seems pretty unimportant to us. But that wilderness in verse 54 was where Jesus had just been seeking refuge from the Jerusalem leaders. So these people are probably from the same region where Jesus had just been laying low. The point of... Drawing that out is that they may have seen Jesus just recently back home in their own region. And the Sanhedrin has put up wanted signs for him in Jerusalem. So this heightens the tension. Socially, religiously, politically, these people who had just come from the region where Jesus just was are now coming to Jerusalem for the feast. And they're seeing that the Jews... Have wanted posters put up all over Jerusalem for Jesus. It's these people, probably from that region, who are now looking for Jesus to arrive in Jerusalem. It makes you wonder why exactly are they looking for him? Well, how does John characterize them in verse 56? They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he won't come to the feast at all? John uses dialogue to characterize the people that speak it. He wants you to meditate on the question, what does their dialogue tell you about them? About their reason for seeking Jesus. Sounds kind of like gossip at the church potluck. What do you think? You think he's not even going to show up this year? They're standing around the temple, loitering, hanging out, finishing up lunch. They're asking each other, what do you think? I want to know what you think about Jesus, and if he's going to show up at the festival or not. They're inviting each other's speculations and opinions. And they're wondering, you think, you think he's not even going to come this year? I mean, he's, he seems like a pretty observant Jew. I can't imagine that he wouldn't show up. But, I mean, it's pretty dangerous here for him. I mean, the chief priests of the Pharisees seem to want him dead, I mean, the grammar of that last question indicates strength of opinion. You think he's not even going to come to the feast at all? You think he's just going to be a total no-show? It's an intense negation. Surely you don't think he'd dare show his face here now with the Sanhedrin hunting his head. Now, maybe we're being too hard on these people. Maybe we're over-reading two questions. After all, they are at Passover. They are looking for Jesus. They could be talking about worse things, right? Maybe. But Jesus' public ministry is coming to a close by the end of chapter 12. This scene in Jerusalem is Jesus' last public appearance before his trial and crucifixion. This is it. Chapter 13 is where he washes the disciples' feet. And from then on, he's not in public until the trial and crucifixion. And John's summary of the human response to Jesus' whole public ministry is unbelief. John twelve thirty seven, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And the they in chapter twelve verse thirty-seven is the crowd in chapter twelve, verse thirty-four. And the crowd, in chapter 12, verse 34, is the people here in Jerusalem preparing for Passover. And these are the ones who get there early to make sure they're pure. So this seeking of Jesus, then, is not necessarily faith-seeking understanding or forgiveness. This is just them seeking each other's opinions about whether Jesus is going to show up at all. And again, all we have to go on in chapter 11, verse 56 is what they say and how they say it. What do you think? That he won't come to the feast at all? What is the purpose of that kind of question? I mean, what if it's us in first century Jerusalem at that Passover and I ask you, what do you think? you think he's going to be here or not? How would you respond to that question? How are you supposed to respond? How would you know? I mean, seriously, how how, how can anyone answer that question? Nobody knows what Jesus is going to do. What does it even matter what people think about whether Jesus will attend or not? It's idle speculation. This is gossip, pure and simple. They're looking for Jesus, but it's salacious speculation about Jesus that they're looking for from each other. As if all they've been reading is the tabloids. Their question is a tabloid question. Will he or won't he? It's kind of daytime talk show stuff. They want to see some fireworks, some drama, some public theatrics. What if he does come? Dude, that would be crazy. I mean, that's, what, that's, the, kind of, that's the kind of conversation they want to have. I mean, if he visits here, it is going to be electric. And just to make sure we get how scandalous it would be, John reminds us in verse 57, the chief priests and Pharisees have given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know that they might arrest him so that they could kill him. That's what they've been wanting to do ever since John 5. John wants you to read this as scandalous gossip column, tabloid, water cooler, place your bets kind of stuff. That's how they're talking. Meanwhile... Why did they come to Jerusalem in the first place? To purify themselves for Passover. Hmm. Very religious of them. How faithful. How spiritual. There's a religious reason, ceremonial reason. Yet knowing what we know about how this story will unfold, it's kind of ironic. These are the people who will, at the very least, do nothing to prevent the crucifixion of their Christ a week from now. And here they are purifying themselves. And in between ritual ceremonies they're standing around the sanctuary speculating, gossiping about Jesus. They have no idea how this looks to John or how it looks to a reader who is asking What are they actually asking? They're doing the ritual, attending the service, getting their church on. But all their talk is gadfly stuff. If he makes an appearance here, we are going to see some theatrics. Pass the popcorn. This is going to be big. I mean, what a way to talk. Well, you're preparing yourself and purifying yourself for Passover. But it's not much different today, is it? I mean, we, we can look at this and be like, oh, shame on them!" tsk, tsk. But some church people thrive on drama, right? I mean, you know this as well as I do. They lust for spectacle. They're interested in Jesus, all right, but only because he enables them to talk about other people's hypocrisies. They're interested in the social theatrics, the political intrigue, the melodrama, the I-can't-believe-he-just-did-or-said-that moments of church life. They are societal voyeurs. Show me something to look at. Show me something that I can hardly believe happened. Tell me something that they said or did that I can be shocked by. They want what we might call a good gawkin' talk. <gasps> Did you see that? They're religious busybodies. What do you think? What would be worse, for him to remain absent or to attend? Ooh, Passover's going to be juicy this year. Something's going down. We're going to have a front row seat. I kind of hope he does come. This is not edifying talk, is it? This is not pure speech. This not speech consistent with a claim to godliness. This is goading each other into gossipy speculation about a scandal or a potential scandal. Now, look at this, professing Christian. Look at this. They're not cussing with each other, they're not telling sex jokes. They're actually talking to each other about Jesus. And still, it's not edifying. Is it helping others grow in holiness or love or sound doctrine? I mean, that's the standard, isn't it? Does their talk at Passover match the reason they came to Jerusalem to purify themselves? This is not pure speech. It's gossip. So brother, sister, tend and tame your tongue. Set a guard over the door of of your lips. Gossip does not harmonize with godliness. It's dissonant. Jesus says elsewhere, you will be judged by every idle word that escapes your mouth. Every one of us here has plenty of reason to melt into a puddle of contrition and cry with Isaiah, woe is me, For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Ephesians 4.29 is clear to us. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up edification, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That question that they ask, what do you think? That's a corrupting way to talk. Because it invites others to talk in a corrupting way. Or it invites them to excuse their corrupt talk. And there's not even a four-letter word anywhere to be found in this text. It's all religious. So if this, if, if this is corrupting, then how would the Bible characterize your speech, Christian? Gossip and cursing, are no laughing matter in the Bible, to gather here at church as if to purify ourselves. And then to use our words on corrupting talk, whether today or later in the week, it contradicts the purity that we claim to pursue. This also is a sin, and it is a sin for which Jesus died. So let's confess it and repent of it and move on together. Let's train ourselves away from gossip away from talk that corrupts towards talk that takes care. Why, again, is everyone coming to this Passover so early? To purify themselves. So now there's a question. Who's pure? Who's defiled? Who's innocent? Who's guilty? Who's really ready for this Passover? The crowds purify themselves ritually only to corrupt themselves verbally. The leaders seek purifying Seek to purify themselves. They want to prosecute a problematic leader in the meantime. The crowds are seeking Jesus. There's a buzz about Jesus and when he'll arrive. Will he give the people what they want? A scene, a show, a miracle, a sign, a conflict, a debate. But for all the inquisitiveness of the crowd, where does Jesus go? This is interesting. This is sweet. Where does Jesus go? He doesn't go immediately to Jerusalem, does he? He doesn't go to the bright lights. He goes to Bethany, to his friends, to the very people who got him in trouble with the Sanhedrin just a few weeks before for raising their brother from the dead. And this leads us to the second response, reason for seeking Jesus devotion from the Bethany family. Devotion in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. This is the central scene, the middle paragraph of the passage, and it presents to us a contrast with the scenes before and after it. The public scene just saw in Jerusalem was spirit was juicy gossip. And the scene after this is suppression of Lazarus as a star witness for Jesus in verses 9 to 11. So... Eleven fifty-five 55 to 57 is the public scene, juicy gossip. 12, 9 to 11 is suppressing or the attempt to suppress a star witness in Lazarus. Here in Bethany, right in the middle, we see Jesus having one last dinner with his devoted disciples in Bethany. And yet here behind closed doors, there's a contrast within the contrast between the devoted disciples and the disciple headed for destruction, Judas. So with all the fans and the frenzy awaiting Jesus at Jerusalem, where does Jesus go? He goes to the family at Bethany because he knows they're his true friends. They want to be with Jesus simply because he is Jesus. He is the Son of God. They believe in him for who he says he is. Mary, Martha, Lazarus all know Jesus to be the resurrection and the life. Martha has already confessed him as the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world these are His people. This is who He wants to be with. This is who He seeks out to be with before the Passover. They love Him. So whether they invited Him or whether He invited Himself over, they share one last meal at home together before heading to Jerusalem for Passover. They just want personal communion with Jesus. Table fellowship. Simple, quiet Communion with Christ around a shared, home-cooked meal. That's how they prepare for Passover. And true to type, Martha is busy serving food, filling cups, clearing plates. Here, I'll take that for you. You need some more water? Lazarus is there, back from the dead, in the flesh, reclining there at the floor-level table with Jesus. I was meditating on this, not at a time when I was preparing for the sermon, but I started wondering if Jesus is just taking quiet comfort and strength from being with Lazarus. (laughs) I mean, Lazarus is living proof of the resurrection from the dead, and Jesus is less than six days from his own crucifixion now. And you just wonder if Jesus is looking at Lazarus Back from the dead with a quiet confidence that in a matter of days he will have his own glorified resurrected body better than Lazarus. In any event, it's probably risky for all of them to be there together. It's risky for Jesus just to be two miles outside of Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin hunt, hunting him down. And for the same reason, it's risky for them, the family, to be with him, Jesus. But this is a house hospitable to the Christ. Come what may. There's a scene in the episode where not much is going on, not much is said. You've probably seen scenes like that in a movie or in a sitcom where there's not much going on. It's just a regular humdrum presentation of a day. A moment in the life. Not much is said. You hear the clatter of silverware on the dishes. Reflective silence tucked in between quiet conversation. It looks commonplace. It is commonplace. Until Mary gets up and does something uncommon. She takes this 12-ounce bottle of super expensive luxury ointment. You could not afford this. I could not afford this. Usually, you would anoint someone's head with oil. She anoints Jesus' feet. A servant would be the one to wash a guest's feet with water. Here, she anoints Jesus' feet. I don't know if it was a cream or a lotion or more of a liquid, but I do know what 12 ounces looks like. It looks like a Coke can. If you pour out 12 ounces of anything on somebody else's feet, you're going to have a lot left over. It's going to look like too much. All right? You, you pour a little can of Coke on anything, and you're like, okay, that's enough. That's, whoa, that's enough. Dude, you're getting it all over the place. It's also unclear whether she uses the whole 12 ounces or whether she stops midway through the bottle. All we can really say for certain is that she used so much of it that the smell filled the whole house. So she used a lot. And remember, they're well-connected in Jerusalem since lots of Jews came to mourn with the sisters when Lazarus died. So this is probably a relatively wealthy, well-connected, well-to-do family in a decent-sized house. So this is a pretty big house to fill with a pretty expensive fragrance. And when she's done anointing his feet, she dries them with her hair. That's not because she didn't have a towel. This is a big, wealthy house. This is the only way she can think of to express the kind of love and care and worship she has for Jesus, and you look at this and you're like, "Man, I, I think I would feel awkward at that table." You would probably feel awkward. She probably felt awkward, but you also get the sense that she's pretty self-forgetful about this. She kind of just doesn't care what anybody else thinks. She doesn't know what else to do. But there is something in her heart that is welling up. Makes her feel like, you know what, I just... I just think I want to do this. Why the hair? Why did she do that? It's weird to you and me, isn't it? But her hair... Is her glory. Her hair is part of what makes her beautiful and feminine, lovely, and it makes it personal, right? Her hair is connected to her. Her hair is part of her. This is a pure way for her to put herself into this act of worship. She doesn't just want to give him this expensive bottle of ointment. She doesn't just want to give him something that cost her money. She wanted to give something of herself. She wanted to put herself into it. And a towel just won't cut it. Not this time. This is personal. It is devoted love. It is pure worship from a whole heart. And it makes you wonder if she wonders, do you know what time it is here? This is the last time we're going to have dinner for you here, isn't it, Jesus? Because I think you're going to this Passover, and I don't think you're coming back. I mean, there's a tenderness, a sorrow, a soft-heartedness, maybe even a broken-heartedness here, maybe a confusion over why things have turned out for Jesus the way they have, why so many powerful people hate him. And if this is not your first time reading through the Gospel of John, then the anointing of Jesus' feet by Mary makes you anticipate another scene coming up very soon, just a chapter later, when Jesus is going to outserve and out-humble Mary. Yeah, Mary anointed Jesus' feet with perfume, which probably indicates his feet were already clean. Jesus will wash all 12 of the disciples' feet while they're dirty, and one of them was Judas. For now, the purity of Mary's ointment is matched by the purity of her devotion and worship to Jesus. As costly as that bottle was, She would not stop at a monetary expense. She would invest herself, her own hair in honoring Jesus. What a stark contrast then with how the crowds purify themselves for the Passover with mere ritual and ceremony only to gawk and gossip about what's going to happen to Jesus if he comes. Christian, how often is your heart and home Aromatic with the fragrance of this kind of heartfelt worship to Jesus. Are you merry in your worship of Jesus? Or are you just one of the crowds of the Jews coming to Jerusalem to purify yourself, going through the motions, and then in between ceremonies you gawk and gossip? Because that's why you're really there. I obviously don't have hair. But I have prayer, (laughs) and you have prayer. The ambiance of a Christian heart and home should be aromatic with prayer and devoted love for Jesus. Prayers of praise to him, prayers of confession of your sin to him, and contrition and sorrow. Prayers of thanks, prayers asking him to do things that only he can do. Your soul should give off the smell of self-forgetful devotion to Jesus. Nobody should be able to look at it and be like, you're just doing that because you want to be seen. You're just doing that because you think it makes you look good. You can't look at Mary like that, can you? There's no possible way you can look at her and be like, there she goes again. There's no way you can look at it like that. Your home should savor of this. That's where it happens, in her home. Mary's worship rebukes the crowd's so-called purification without a single word. This is how you love Jesus. This is how you show him. Pure, humble, expensive, extravagant, personal, caring, tender-hearted worship. Unlike the Jerusalem visitors, she does it quietly, and no one sees it but her own family and Jesus' closest disciples, one of whom... Was Judas. That leads us to our third motive, which is greed. Greed. Verses 4 through 8, chapter 12. We said before that this dinner presents a contrast within a contrast. So you've got the public private, the festival, now Bethany house, and then more Jews come to Bethany just to see Lazarus and to see Jesus. But now there's a contrast within that contrast, in the house itself. In the middle of the big contrast between Jerusalem and Bethany house is a mini contrast between Mary and Judas inside Bethany house. Mary gives to Judas. Now Judas steals from Jesus. Judas is an insider, one of Jesus' own disciples in the right place at the right time but with the wrong attitude and the wrong aim. And here again, look at how close you can be to Jesus. Look at this. Look at how close you can be to those who will write Scripture. Likely, He's right there with Peter, James, and John. Look at how much of an insider you can be with Jesus and His people. Look at how Thoroughly you can fool us. And still you can betray him. And just as Judas will eventually betray Jesus for money, so he would have deprived Jesus of Mary's costly worship in order to steal Jesus' money. All Judas sees in Mary's extravagant devotion to Jesus is how much money she's wasting. Of course, he's a greedy thief, so he can't show his true colors, but he can't stand to say nothing. I mean, he's just one of, the, one of the fellas up to this point. And then she does that. You know, he's eating, just, you know, having lunch, whatever. Here we are. And all of a sudden, Mary gets up and does what she does, and he can hardly keep his lunch in his mouth. He about spits it out. You got. I mean, this makes him do a double take. He's eating, eating, eating. What the? What are you? What are you doing? That's what he did. It's the equivalent of what he did. That's what I think the equivalent is of what he did. That's a, if, that's a, this is a pretty big thing to happen for a guy like Judas. So to make it sound good, though, he has to act like this is a stewardship issue. I mean, that's what greedy religious people do, right? When they don't want to spend or give, that's the Lord's money. Why wasn't that given to the poor? We should have put that in the benevolence fund. But if you were to look at their giving statement at the end of the year, you would not find much evidence of such firmly stated financial convictions. Judas phrases his moral shock as a why question. Why? Literally, for what good reason? For what reason? Tell me you have a reason that I don't understand for wasting that much money. I don't think you do. That's why I'm asking it to you. This question is not asking for an answer. It's a rhetorical question. Why? Why? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, 300 days wages for a day laborer? This is for some people January through September. Hourly wages. It's a lot of money. This is... In modern terms, probably the equivalent of about a five-figure sum. This is a perfume you would not buy. You could not buy it. Even if you could buy it, I don't think any of you would. It's unclear whether that was the real value of the stuff or whether Judas is exaggerating so that everybody else will be as shocked as he is. Either way, he is so confident in his perspective that he thinks there is no answer to this question. Do you realize how many poor people we could have fed with that? You silly woman. But this is moral grandstanding, right? I mean, you know, you know as well as I do, Judas. We would call this today virtue signaling. You know how many poor people you could have fed with that? You're just wasting that on Jesus' feet of all things? Shame on you. When you could have fed so many poor people, you could have done so much good. We could have done so much more with that, for the poor people, of course. What a waste. Blow it all on Jesus' feet. What are you thinking? Little did Mary or anyone else realize that Jesus... Had a crook for a treasurer. He's been skimming off the top this whole time, John said. I mean, with this kind of friend, who needs enemies, right? We lament financial scandals in the church, and we might criticize leaders for lack of accountability or discernment, but even Jesus' treasurer had sticky fingers. It's not an excuse, just a reality. It's as old as time. And by the way, this is a mark of John's honesty as a historian. Look, if you're an unbeliever, if you're a skeptic about the Bible, just look at this. Look at this. If John's lying, why in the world is he including this? If John's lying about who Jesus is and he just wants to dupe you, why would he ever tell you that Jesus had a crook for a treasurer? (laughs) That's not the stuff of some guy that's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. He's telling you, look, yeah, this is, yeah, it was bad. It was bad. And you're like, Jesus is omniscient, right? Like he's claiming to be God. He knows this, right? Yeah, he knew. Yeah, this is how it went. This kind of embarrassing detail, this is why you can trust the gospel, is being honest with you. This is not a sanitized version of what happened. This is real. Now, it's unclear what happened and what Judas is upset about until Jesus says, leave her or it alone in order that it might be kept for the day of my burial. Jesus' answer simply implies that he either wanted Mary to save the rest of it for his burial or maybe that she emptied the whole thing anticipating his death and anointing for burial. Either way, Jesus' reply adds another layer of contrast. The contrast now is not just between Mary and Judas but between Judas and Jesus. There's like a contrast within a contrast within a contrast. It's like a Russian doll. The contrast is that Judas is thinking about taking the money for himself. And Jesus is thinking about giving up his life and laying it down in death and burial for the atonement of our sins. Extravagant worship seemed like a waste to Jesus. For him... Or to Judas, excuse me. For him it was the money. Surely there's something better to do with all our resources than splurge like that on Jesus. And for us today it might still be the money. For some of us it is. But it's not just the money, is it? It's the time. It's the energy. It's the priority. It's other things that we have to say no to. Other opportunities. the opportunity cost. What are we not able to do because we're busy anointing Jesus' feet? Surely there's something better to do with the Lord's Day or the first part of my morning or the last part of my night than stand around singing this much or reading the Bible or listening for so long to such long sermons. And it's so tiring to give so much energy on the weekend when my weeks are so busy. Why blow all this time and energy on Jesus and His people. I mean, He knows I love Him, Right? It seems so over the top, so wasteful. I mean, nobody else in the family busted a five-figure bottle of luxe liniment on Jesus. And they're still Christians. I mean, Lazarus didn't do that. Martha didn't do it. Other churches' services aren't so long. Other churches don't demand that we be this holy. Why would she go and have to do that? I mean, isn't that how we might have thought if we were there? We don't don't want to admit it. But friend, there is a Judas in your heart and in mine about this kind of thing. I dare you to tell me that you have never thought like that about the demands... Of Christian life and worship, and what's our excuse for thinking like that? It's the same as Judas's. We just think there's a better way to invest it than blowing the whole thing on Jesus' feet. Again, we may not be apostates like Judas, but we don't blush to use his public excuses to privately keep back money and time and energy to ourselves, right? I I just, I really, actually, actually, I I really think my time, my money, my energy—it would. Be better spent over here. I mean, Jesus told him. Jesus is calling me to do this. I really feel like Jesus is telling me. By which we usually mean, let me go home and watch football or surf the Internet or knit or cook or barbecue or sleep or just be alone. But look here, who loved Jesus? Who loved Jesus here? Mary loved Jesus. It's not simply that Judas did not love Jesus enough to see that Jesus was worthy of such extravagance. Judas did not love Jesus at all. He literally did not have the heart for this kind of extravagance towards Jesus, and that is why he could not wrap his mind around it. Professing Christian, good religious person who likes to be known among other good religious people Don't love money and merely use Jesus. Love Jesus and then merely use money to love Jesus and love other people. You see here how love of money is the root of all Judas's evil. This is where it started, man. Skimming off the top. Do not let that lesson be lost on you, brother businessman. Brother breadwinner. Brother householder. Brother who doesn't want to pay for a new refrigerator or a new dishwasher or a new roof or a new whatever. And so maybe you say, well, maybe I just, you know, stop giving for a while. Don't deceive yourself into being willfully ignorant of this. And don't let your wife deceive herself into being willfully ignorant of this. Your generosity is not measured by how much you give. It's measured by, by how much you keep. We can all come up with plausible, high-sounding excuses not to give to the cause of the gospel and to the strengthening of the churches. All of us have excuses. Well, I got this, I got that, I got this, oh, this is coming up. And surely you wouldn't use the Malachi 3 sermon from a few weeks ago as an excuse not to give, right? Don't do that. I mean, if you do that, the greed of Judas is your warning. Judas will soon sell Jesus out to his murderers for less than half of what Mary's perfume was worth. That's how much you love money. And Jesus says to Judas, The poor you will always have with you, but me you will not always have. That first part of verse 8 is almost a direct quote from Deuteronomy 15.11. There, it's an encouragement to give generously to the poor, to share with the poor among God's people in Israel, trusting that God will give to us when we give to others. Here, though, it's the opposite. You will have plenty of time to give to the poor and meet their physical needs, but you will not have plenty of time to do what Mary is doing for my physical needs because pretty soon I will not be physically among you anymore. These feet are getting ready to be nailed to a cross. This is the right thing to do with that ointment. And this is the only time she can do it. The window of Jesus' earthly life is quickly closing. Whatever Mary or anyone else wants to do for Jesus in terms of this worldly needs, they're going to have to do it within a week's time. And somehow Mary herself is acting appropriately to the occasion. I mean, you don't have to be a prophetess to realize that for Jesus to head to Jerusalem is going to be the death of Him. Everybody knew that. That was the buzz back in Jerusalem. Notice also how easy it is to excuse selfishness ...with a perceived or purported concern for the poor. J.C. Ryle said over a hundred years ago... hundreds of people excused themselves from one class of duties... ...by pretended zeal for others. <laughs> and they compensate for neglecting Christ's cause... ...by affecting great concern for the poor. Yet in reality they care nothing for the poor... ...and only want to save their own money... ...and to be spared from contributing to religious objects... There are few greater imposters in the world than some of those who are pretending perpetually to care about the poor. He said that over 100 years ago in England, and it's still true today, on both sides of the political aisle. Fourth, controversy. Controversy in verses 9 to 11. Fourth, reason for seeking Jesus. Verses 9 to 11. Word travels fast between Bethany and Jerusalem. It's only... Two miles or so, crowd of curious Jews in Jerusalem seeking Jesus in 1156. The rumor mill tells them Jesus is in Bethany, just two miles outside of town. So they scurry out there to see what's what. The celebrity healer and debater is back in town or outside town, and who knows, maybe he'll put on another miracle show. But they also want to see Lazarus. After all, how many times in your life do you get to meet someone who's been raised from the dead? I mean, I want to shake that guy's hand. I want to touch him. I want to watch him eat. Where is that going? You really, I guess guess he did it. Let's see if we can touch him. Maybe we'll get his autograph. At worst, Lazarus is a novelty to them. He's like a museum piece. It's like a circus show. At best, he's a living witness that Jesus really is the resurrection and the life. That's why John showed him to you. And that is why the chief priests want Lazarus dead just as much as they want Jesus dead, because in verse 11, on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus, going away. It's an interesting way to put it. Going away. Going away from what? Well, they do literally, spatially, geographically, they do go away from Jerusalem. But it looks like they're going away from more than just Jerusalem. It's looking like they're going away from the people who lead Jerusalem the chief priests and the Pharisees. They're going away from their interpretation of God's law and their way to obey God's law. So many Jewish people were going away from that to believe in Jesus based on Lazarus. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus here? These people Christians? Christians? After all, just twenty five verses later, twelve thirty seven, John sums up Israel's whole response to Jesus' whole public ministry with unbelief, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Nothing has changed. Since chapter two, verse twenty-three, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at another Passover feast, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. The general response of faithless faith. Brackets Jesus' whole public ministry. From chapter 2 to chapter 12. From start to finish. People believe in Jesus. Yet somehow without actually believing in Jesus. Faithless Faith. What does that mean? Faithless faith. These unbelieving believers. They're intrigued. They're excited. They're curious about Jesus. They have an, an interest about him. He's electrifying to them. He creates a buzz. When he's in town, everybody knows that they flock to him. They become Jesus fans, enthusiasts, admirers, followers, acolytes, hangers-on, but they're followers only in the sense of being groupies. They're not disciples. They're going to the concert. (sighs) You're awesome! When's your next concert? Where are you going? Can I come with you? Can I come back there to see what you're doing? I would love to have lunch with you. The groupies, they're not disciples. They're not following his example. They're following his itinerary. Very different. They're not believing in him for who he's saying he is. They're just trying to get something out of him. They just want to be amazed. To them, Jesus is the greatest showman He is a wonder worker, followed by a brilliant and kind of enigmatic TED talk. Watch this. Whew. Now, listen to me. And everybody's like, whoa. And he stumps the chumps. I mean, everybody loves it when he does this with the Pharisees and the chief priests. Proves them wrong, asks them a question they can't answer. They're like, man, he gets the best of them every time. I love going to those. It's not just Lazarus that was a novelty to them. Jesus himself was a novelty. How did he do that? Amazement, though, is not faith. Religious voyeurism is not faith. Even Herod wanted to see Jesus do stuff. They believed in Jesus as a celebrity, not as a savior. Jesus Christ, superstar. That's what he was to them. But he's not their Lord. They feel that they owe him no obedience, no reliance, no trust, certainly no worship. Regardless, the Jews didn't want anyone believing in Jesus as anything, whether a celebrity or Caesar or Savior, which made Lazarus back from the dead a royal pain in the neck because he was becoming the latest attraction to Jesus. He's like a living billboard for Jesus. Lazarus Is guilty by resurrection as the living display of Jesus' life giving power. So if people are believing in Jesus as anything based on Lazarus, then Lazarus has got to go too. Friend, are you a Jesus groupie? Or are you a disciple? What are you looking for in Jesus? Is he just another celebrity, a novelty, a spectacle? Impress me, amaze me, fascinate me. What's he going to do next? Folks, step right up. You have to believe in Jesus as Savior from the power and penalty of your sins, not as spectacle, not as celebrity. Savior through the righteousness of his life, the blood of his cross, the power of his resurrection, and then he becomes Lord of your conscience. And he tells you what you're allowed to say and do. Anything less is faithless faith. If you're listening to this and you suspect that your own faith in Jesus has been faithless, come and see me, see anybody who's been up here on the platform today, we'd be happy to talk and pray with you. Christian, this conspiracy against Lazarus actually anticipates Jesus' own teaching about us in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. Lazarus was the first. The world here, ironically represented by Israel's religious leaders, hates Lazarus because it hates Jesus. And Lazarus points to Jesus. Christian, your very existence, your new spiritual life, alive to the things of God and the Bible and Jesus Christ by His Spirit, your very new life in Christ is perceived by the world as a threat to their own power to their own freedom to their own love of doing what they love to do the world will hate you for being raised to new spiritual life eternal life, obedient life in and with Christ don't be surprised by that they tried to kill Lazarus of all people not for anything he did but because of what Jesus had done for him. Yeah, that's the Christian life. Think about this, friend. Whether you're a Christian or not, the enemies of Jesus wanted to kill the first person he raised from the dead. That is remarkable blindness to the significance of the sign. What did that sign signify about Jesus? He's the resurrection and the life. And what do they do? They want to kill the sign and the one who worked it. And again, they did not want to kill Lazarus because they thought he was lying about Jesus. They wanted to kill him because everyone knew he was living because of Jesus. Lazarus, alive from the dead, was attracting attention to Jesus. The crowds are not being converted to Christ here, though. At this point, according to John's summary, this is just faithless faith. But it's causing a stir, it's threatening the leaders. These crowds are not being saved. They're being impressed, amazed, mesmerized. And that's where you and I come in. Where do we find ourselves in this narrative? We are looking for Jesus, but with what attitude, what aim? The crowds come to gawk and gossip about Jesus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus come to commune with Jesus. Judas comes with a greedy selfishness to steal and betray and criticize. Others come to see what Jesus had done for Lazarus and to believe in Jesus in some way in verses 9-11. to But by the end of chapter 12, John's going to be lamenting, nobody has really believed in Jesus' testimony for what it means. Or the signs for what they signify about him and about his relationship to God. And what about us? Have we come here only to gawk at the preaching and the music or to gossip with each other? Have we come with greedy hearts that are kind of confused by why people give to the ministry of the gospel? I pray ours is not merely a faithless kind of faith. We have come here to commune together with the living Christ, to love and worship Him together, to lavish Him with the praise and devotion and love He deserves. Is that why you're here? Or are you seeking Jesus for something else? Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we have mixed motives. Our worship of you is never perfectly pure. Our reason for seeking you is sometimes self-centered. Sometimes it's just worldly what we want to see and get from Jesus. Father, forgive us for often thinking that we can come to church and somehow think we're being clean or pure and then talking like we talk or being motivated by greed as we are. We pray instead that you would increasingly bless us with a greater and greater desire to commune with the living Christ for who he is, for who he says he is, for who the signs signify him to be. And we pray, would you bless us in that communion with him? Would you bless us in our fellowship with Christ? And make us look more like him as we look at him.